Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 61, Art and Knowing with Dr. Esther Meek. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're discussing art and knowing with Dr. Esther Meek, who is professor of philosophy at Geneva College and the author of a couple important studies on epistemology, including Longing to Know, The Philosophy of Knowledge for Ordinary People, published by Brazos, and Loving to Know, Introducing Covenant Epistemology with Cascade. Team members from the two cities on the episode include Amber Bowen, Dr. Josh Carroll, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So Josh and Amber, how'd you two enjoy the discussion? Well, for anybody who thinks that philosophy and in particular philosophers are boring and dry, crusty old academics, they've clearly never met Dr. Meek before. Yeah, she's really lively. And I just love how the conversation traversed so much ground. I mean, we talked about Harry Potter and sports and David Lynch and a whole bunch of other things. Yeah, I loved her passion. I loved I loved how into everything she was. She's studying all these different eclectic things and trying to integrate and um, and excited about it at the same time. So yeah, and particularly thinking about art and what does it mean to be knowers and makers and artists and how do we do these things in our everyday lives? How do we think about the kinds of things that we do in just ordinary day to day? Esther, as a philosopher, is has such an eye for examining those things and inviting us to indwell those things more deeply um, and inviting us to find joy in those things. And so I, I think that's what really shines forth in this episode. Yeah, what we'll talk about today are the challenges of modernity when it comes to art and creativity and a really interesting conversation of what it means to be bored and finding beauty as you as you work. One other thing about Dr. Meek that really comes out in this episode is she is a fellow for the Fujimira Institute of Scholars, um, which is an institute that Makoto Fujimira has brought together of scholars in various fields that come and discuss things like theology and making and art and philosophy. And she's a really esteemed member of that and is a close friend of Mako's. All right. Well, without further ado, here's our conversation with Dr. Esther Meek. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Meek. Thank you for having me. So, Dr. Meek, you are known for your work on epistemology, and in particular, what you describe as a covenant epistemology. Since we're starting a series on art and culture, wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the relationship between art and knowing. Well, I like that question. And um I I would say often there isn't a relationship between art and knowing. I think I think uh, lots of people think that art is one thing and knowing is something else. And uh, the innovative proposals I've made about how knowing works uh, really say, uh, 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 show that the act of discovery and the creative act are fundamentally the same thing. And um, but it takes a kind of an overhaul of your uh, kind of preset on how knowing works to uh, see that what you're doing is actually of a piece. It's it's both a creative act and an act of coming to know. And uh, I like to talk a lot about how knowing works. And to me, that's been effectively the creative act. So I do have some proposals about knowing. A lot of them were uh, in a key way influenced, uh, developed from the work of a famous uh, scientific discoverer turned philosopher whose name was Michael Polanyi. I want to give credit where credit is due. But his proposals about what, what discoverers are actually doing or better be doing if they're going to make a discovery, is um, are the proposals about how knowing works that I've adopted and adapted. I, I, I think they're pretty undeniably kind of what we all as humans do. And um, it, 
is an approach to knowing I can teach you if you like, but, but uh, it's uh, an inherently creative venture to move from not yet knowing to some sort of integrative, uh, beautiful, <laughs> uh, coherent pattern. And uh, that's um, essentially, I think, the, the tack that we take for engaging reality, no matter what we're doing, whether we, we consider it a probing for a discovery or probing, probing for a deeper grasp of an incredibly rich reality. Dr. Meek, you talk a lot about, um, in your covenant epistemology, you give us the backdrop of what you call a defect epistemic default. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by that and how it is that we are experts in knowing that just by virtue of the <laughs> fact that we live in it all the time. So even people who don't think that they're philosophers, they know nothing about the critical framework of philosophy are actually really well versed in this. Um, can you explain what that is and then explain how it is that that's defective in terms of making us good knowers? Yeah, yeah, good question. Well, and it always needs to be the place that I start. And uh, artists like Mako start there too, because art and philosophy share uh, having been marginalized by the overarching predominant strident milieu that we know of as modernity or the modern West, uh, beginning in the 17th century. And um, it was this great meta-narratival <laughs> slate of hand that, that uh, is an anti-philosophical philosophy. And uh, so, uh, you know, the greats like Descartes and Francis Bacon and, and uh, Hobbes and, and uh, Newton, you know, they all, they all said it was, uh, you know, the, the philosophy, philosophical things just are useless. And we're now gonna exalt usefulness for the end of, of hu human mastery over nature. And if you're gonna um, undertake a takeover, you need to dehumanize the people you're about to take over, that, which includes nature, right? So if you're gonna have human mastery over nature, you've gotta denude nature uh, so that you're entitled to it. And um, the way you do that is you uh, torpedo and jettison, disavow uh, some, uh, philosophical commitments that, you know, if you gave some thought to nature, <laughs> you'd have to hold. And uh, that that approach not only marginalized philosophy, it ma marginalized beauty and um, artistry becomes useless, you see. And anything that doesn't seem to be useful, defined term in terms now of, of uh, kind of a material progress, um, the other thing that happens is reality gets kind of reduced to the bits, to the meaningless bits. And uh, I, I have to say, actually, this has come along really since I, I wrote Loving to Know in 2011. It's just been developing over the more recent years. I have to say I'm in love with things. And, and you know, it's a, a thing is just like this most magical <laughs> philosophical reality that was totally stripped uh, away by the folks that were the architects of modernity. And so now how, what that means is, and uh, this is another reason I'm, I'm in philosophy, I, it just seems to be the case that all you need to be philosophical is to have been born that to be human is to be philosophical, whether you realize it or not. And so if that's the case, philosophizing is our birthright. And if that's the case, if modernity is this override of philosophizing, we've been stripped in modernity by our, uh, of our birthright. So that makes us all a wreck. <laughs> so um, we have these the, this philosophical inclination or orientation just as part of being human, you, you know, we're always asking who we are. <laughs> you know, it's like we do it every morning when we look in the mirror. And, and um, we've just been deprived of the very thing that we, we are. So you can't avoid doing philosophy. And so you have this, this kind of fundamental, what I call this defective epistemic and also defective metaphysical default um, that is a, a skewed uh, presumption about those fundamental 
things about who we are, what reality is, and how we're related to it. And you can't take a step without presuming some sort of uh, implicit orientation to that. So you're automatically doing something philosophical, whether you're denying it or not. And so that's kind of how we're in the situation where we are, where I can't start talking without kind of beginning with a defense of why you need to listen to me talk about philosophy. I mean, it's really that in itself is a sign of our terrible situation that I have to argue for the value of what I'm doing, <laughs> if that makes any sense. I just finished reading a book by Craig Gay called Modern Technology and the Human Future. And in that book, he talks a lot about some of the things that you had just mentioned about converting nature from a you into an it and how that has impacted our relationship with nature. And, and he sort of describes it as a disenchantment in which you know, nature is no longer enchanting. And, and later on, he, he proceeds to describe it more in terms of a kind of desacramentalization. And I wonder if you might be able to speak to that concept of a sacramental approach to nature and whether you find that to be a helpful category or not. Well, ah, I'm so glad you raised that. But I, I have to confess, I'm, I'm maybe not as boned up on this as I should be. And to the extent that I am, I'm thinking that maybe I don't have a sacramental view of nature. But I think that things all by themselves are absolutely incredible. I, you know, I come from a, a religious tradition where, you know, you open your eyes and, and your eyes land on a tree. And that's the word of the Lord, too. And I, I guess I am a little gun shy about the word sacramental because just the tree itself is the word of the Lord. And I don't need to somehow baptize it or find something extra. It already is in its ordinariness. It's already inherently religious. I some some years ago, I thought about this fun question, and this is so not the sort of quip I'm I'm given to, as Amber will tell you. But I think about this question. When God was making the world, was that a religious act? Well, you know, your answer should be both yes and no. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not like he kind of made the world and, and then sacramentalized it <laughs> somehow. So I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm a sacramentalist, but I don't know enough to, to be sure. I just, I just want to say there's something profoundly wonderful about things. And I think if I say that, that's going to scandalize a whole lot of Christian believers who hear that and they think materialism and I want to get over that. You know, this is not a, I don't know, I want to get back to the ordinary uh, that is just philosophically fantastic in its ordinariness. And, you know, it's, it's not that I don't need God. I mean, I feel like this is inherently open uh, and, and uh, you know, just kind of glistening with the presence of God. But that's not a sacramental thing necessarily. Well, I was actually going to ask, in light of that, how you would think about art and, and our making of things um, and our representation of things, our creative construals of things, and our actual creative bringing into existence different pieces of art, um, expressions of art. One thing I was thinking about when you were describing the marginalization of art and also philosophy and modernity, it's very true. And philosophy, if it was going to have uh, any kind of survival in modernity, it had to become mathematic, essentially. It had to become very... Um, a lot of logic chopping, right? Not necessarily the traditional pursuit of wisdom or the pursuit of truth, goodness, and beauty uh, that we typically see in especially pre-modern philosophy. Um, but art and philosophy, you know, art, like you were saying, it's just this thing that's cosmetic. It's maybe a luxury for the people who can afford it, right? It's not necessarily something that is a essential part of our world or our lives. And it's kind of this frivolous thing that we almost feel guilty 
for enjoying it or indulging in it, and especially for spending time creating it. So I'm wondering if you can speak to just that practice of creating art and how we should think about that. Yeah. One of the, uh, so I'm actually writing a book on this now. I'm calling it Doorway to Artistry. And uh, it's the beginning of my Doorway series where I take my philosophical proposals into different arenas of life. And the first one's art. And um, I think, uh, and there was a lot in what you asked, Amber. So I want to make sure I don't forget anything. But one of the things, for example, that I think we think about art is that it's a subjective self-expression, merely. And uh, we can feel that way because our, what our inherited grasp, philosophical grasp, is that reality isn't there for us to access and trust and develop, okay? So in other words, so when I talk to my students about reality, their first question is, my reality or yours? Right, which is this, like, this fundamental distrust of anything outside you. Now, if you're an artist and you can't help but be an artist, then what you're left with is this is a subject of self-expression. And that's simultaneously arrogant and falsely modest, which is also arrogant, <laughs> you know. And it's not just the artists, it's all of us because of this inherited baggage that we've got. But I think, and and I've I've just been really blessed to read not only Mako, but other artists. My son-in-law is an artist, and I've asked for favorite books and that kind of thing. So I've been reading around. But but when you take the idea of making, which is kind of like the cool word right now, if you if you're an artist, part of what makes you a really thriving artist is to be in love with your materials. And you're what you're doing is you're close to them and you're developing them. And you're exploring possibilities. And I'm reading a book right now called Art and Fear that my son-in-law told me about. And, you know, it, it's, it's like you want to produce lots of art close to where you are. And it's only in the process, you know, that this is going to develop. And so I, I would like, and this is getting back to, I think, your main question, Amber. I'd, I'd like us to recover an idea that artistry lies at the heart of who we are. Mako and I have talked about how the fact, how it's, it's a sad fact that kids, all young kids all think they're artists until about age, you know, third grade. And then they stop saying that. And I think that's the, the, about the time that the defective epistemic and metaphysical default just comes to reign tacitly. And really what we want to do is get back to what I want to call a metaphysics of childhood, you know, something that we, we naturally grow into. And I think back there, if we can especially redraw what we mean by reality and by knowing where artistry is what we do as humans just and that's kind of akin with this joyous <laughs> delight in the world I mean it, you know ki kids love things <laughs> and want to work with things and and my son-in-law is no different I mean the the stuff he's cranking out is so much play well, you should have seen the lit up the lit up box that just showed up in his Instagram, you know, rocking back and forth. <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking, oh, my my grandson would love this, you know. So it's this play, and I and it opens it opens reality. I because I think of reality as very live and dynamic, and it's it's more three dimensional and lively than the two dimensional reductive bit like. Uh, outlook that we've inherited in modernity. So, so what you're made to do, this is what I think you're made to do as a human is to commune with reality. And that's a lively, mutually indwelling, mutually gifting, unfolding of all kinds of possibilities. And that's not sacramental. That's human. If you can just have your philosophy fixed, you can do that. Epistemic therapy is what you offer, and it's very true. Um, yeah. I love that metaphysics of childhood. I actually have this definition of philosophy that my PhD supervisor, Aaron Simmons, gave me that I love, and I'll use it the rest of my life, which is philosophy is simply the practice of putting question marks where everyone else puts periods. <laughs> and 
it's, it's such a great definition because it means that every single one of us is born into being a philosopher from the time we turn two years old and start asking that incessant question, why? And mm-hmm. we drive our parents nuts because you put question marks where everybody else puts periods in the you know most obvious places and kids don't do that. And it's that inherent curiosity and yeah. desire to know and a desire to understand. And I think what I'm hearing you say is, that's essentially what art is. Mm-hmm. I would like to nuance the definition, though, to say those question marks are not question marks of skepticism right. and criticism. They're, right. ske- they're, they're like, how is it that this is? You know, it's, it's wonder and it's, of course, let's go. You know, it, it's kind of like that, which is, I think, you know, my story as a person is that uh, when I was in, when I was getting past childhood, I had these questions I was sure were sin uh, and proved to be (laughs) philosophical, (laughs) but they were skeptical questions, you know, about how do I know that God exists and how do I know that I, that you exist outside of my mind, you know? So, so I, I, uh, you know, was playing out uh, of falling into skepticism, which I think is of a piece with the defective epistemic default too. And uh, back to your uh, characterization of what a lot of philosophy is like in modernity, Amber, a lot of it has adopted this posture of of just kind of um, exploring things that can't really be resolved, which is kind of, you know, sad to say, current philosophizing can can feed the bad rap that philosophy gets. When I, you know, what when I I became alive to the the incredible, the incredibly wonderful thing that philosophy was, uh, when I went to grad school, that was not sustained. <laughs> I held on to it in its absence uh, through my grad work. I'm not sure that's been Amber's sad. I don't think that you've had that sad lot kind of the way I did. Most certainly. And I would say, actually, it's being introduced to your work that really helped me move past that, because so much of philosophy is just we have these inescapable problems and we can't actually escape them. I mean, I can't actually figure out how it is that my internal mental states correspond to external reality. And we can keep throwing out theories and, you know, keep trying to escape this conundrum. But at the end of the day, we keep recycling the same things over and over and again. And, and it really is because it we needed a whole epistemic overhaul, you know. Right. And then once you do, it just opens you up to this world where the questions are not paranoid skeptical questions. The questions are exploratory and exciting yeah. and and so much possibilities unfolding that comes from them. So it, it makes philosophy a very different kind of enterprise. Yeah, I, I love what you're saying about the defective epistemic default. I, when I when I think about art, I think about its subversiveness throughout history. Also, so you also, you have the, you know, the modernity philosophy trying to control things, and you have this separate train of thought where art is subversive, even though it kind of looks like it's coming in line with what's happening in modernity and philosophy. It's subversive, and with art, how is it subverting this epistemic defective epistemic default, and how is it? causing health in individuals. Yeah, I would say about art, uh, but also about athletics (laughs) and other things, that it has everything it needs to be subversive, so long as it is self-aware philosophically. And I, I'm not speaking artistically. I'm, I took you as referring to kind of subverting the philosophical default default but it seems to me that bodied things artful bodied things we do which includes football as well as painting as well as skateboarding as well as dance as well as you know writing when you stop and think about it, all this kind of bodied stuff it could it holds the potential to restore us to ourselves but you have got to been blipped over the head kind of like you know Simba (laughs) Uh, and waked up to uh, something 
uh, truer to yourself than the self-denial you might have been listening out, following out. So I feel as if athletes can be bad at punishing their bodies and they treat their bodies as an object that they need to control. But they'd actually be a better athlete if they learned somehow to work with a kind of reverence with their body, that, with an attunement to their body. And, and I would think, although Mako is saying that art intrinsically is integrative, I think it might not be if you haven't developed some of this other perspective. It ought to be, but the fact, the real fact is that we are really bad at self-description at what we do and because of the, the epistemic default. And so, the, I mean, what Polanyi was saying about this is science, scientific discovery. If science, if discovery, if science is happening the way scientists are self-describing, starting with the scientific method, no scientific discoverer could, discovery could ever happen. Now that's a massive claim. Yeah, so you're essentially saying that it's not that we need to completely stop what we're doing and learn something entirely new. You're saying we already do these things. We already learn in this way. We just don't realize that we learn in this way or we don't think that we learn in this way. You give this great example of learning how to ride a bike. I'm wondering if you can just describe briefly <laughs> how what that means in terms of the knowing process and yeah, how that relates to this default we've been talking about. Well, I want to start by saying, well, there's, some, you know, from my original perspective, there was something very unnatural about riding a bike. <laughs> I mean, when I, I, I was the skeptic, right? <laughs> so when I approached bike riding, I was, I was sure that it was not possible for a human being to keep balance on two points. I, you know, that just, that's, I was like, I can't believe my father's asking me to do this. <laughs> right? But what you're referring to is once once you you figure it out, <laughs> right? Uh, what ha happens is you and your 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 body and the world and the bike all come together into this lovely integrative performance that opens up vistas of reality to you. And I would say every single act of knowing does that and every single creative act does that. And, and it's intrinsically a creative, dynamic, uh, two-leveled process that's going on. It's near and far, here and beyond. It's just, and it, but it's, it's, you know, a four-year-old can learn to ride a bike, right? If you, but, you know, in the kind of the epistemology, we tend to, inherit the mind what what i call elsewhere than knowledge as information mindset no amount of information can be amassed that that will add up in a linear way to riding a bike yeah i i thought about this um quite a bit the last week because some friends of mine who have teenagers are doing driver's ed right now <laughs> and so, and of course it's all virtual because of COVID. And so I've been watching these teenagers on their computers for three hours a day, hearing all of these instructions about driving, right? Oh, <laughs> well, meanwhile, I know full well that if you put one of those two behind an actual car, like they're not drivers, <laughs> they know all of these things, you know, they're passing, they're passing their tests and it is important to learn the rules of the road and those sorts of things, Right. But just because they passed driver's ed does not make them drivers. It's mm -hmm. a very two-dimensional kind of thing. They're just amassing knowledge. They mm -hmm. won't become drivers until they can integrate that knowledge that they've learned with the know-how and the skill of actually being behind the wheel and knowing how to navigate a car. That's when they're going to become drivers, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess the same thing is, is true for artists as well in terms of creation. And I think the same would be true even for those of us who aren't, we're not painters, right? But we, we are lovers of art and learning how to love art and, and deriving enjoyment from art too. It's that kind of a, a closeness of the relationship um, mm -hmm. to the art. Yeah. I want to add... Uh... Uh, the uh, inject the word subsidiary <laughs> into our talk about bike riding and car driving. Uh, 
and and the act of coming to know because Polanyi uh, proposed that we really have this from to two leveled structure of knowing and 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 there's this the the things the clues that we're relying on and indwelling in a bodied sort of way and then the yet to be fully revealed integrative pattern that we're seeking that's beyond us and so what happens you know that rocky line eye on the prize <laughs> okay so we got our eye on the prize out there and then what we're actually doing is subsidiarily scrabbling working with what is available to us toward it and that's that's an incredibly creative thing and also the prize itself is unfolding as we go too and so and there's this dynamic it's happening on both levels and it's integrative too so that's why uh, and in subs this is called subsidiary focal integration you want to see that your job is to get to the pattern but it's not to get to the pattern as in a way that uh, dismisses the subsidiaries i say you disregard the subsidiaries to your peril so you want to have a kind of intentionality and care for developing the subsidiaries and loving to know i call this virtuosity it's it's an artful working with the subsidiaries as subsidiaries to orient toward the pattern and and as you're working with the subsidiaries there's a those are subsidiaries in your body they're subsidiaries in your situation and they're also normative words you know teachers and coaches and you know that that have said things that we're trying to inhabit too and all these need to come together subsidiarily and when you think of an if you're trying to find an example of subsidiary knowledge that sense of keeping your balance on the bike is a great example because it is unnameable but it's palpable you can get it wrong you can train it and that that it that's kind of the heart of this subsidiary trust reliance uh, among the clues uh in a way that invites the reality of the farther pattern yeah so the bike example i mean i remember when i was first learning to ride a bike and i had it was awful because I remembered all the instructions that my dad gave me and I was trying to keep them all in my mind. Right. And then I'm clunky on the bike and I'm, I've got my hands on the handles and I'm paying attention to which foot is on which pedal. Right. And, and I'm very focused on the from aspects of the bike. Right. Yeah. And, but I'm, but I'm overthinking it too. Yeah. And it wasn't until that moment of Boom. And I, I mean, I still remember my dad throwing his hands up and, you know, going, woo, yeah, <laughs> when I <yeah>. actually <laughs> rode the bike. And, and it happened, I kept falling and it happened when I like, didn't even think about it so much. I just rode, <laughs> you yeah. know, I got on it and went and I became a bike rider. And I would think the same is true for art. Like this, the, the materials that you're using, the yeah. techniques you're using, those sorts of things, like you're not vocally exclusively focus on those things you're mm -hmm. using those things you're indwelling those things in order to yeah you're to really attuned to them and, you know if you think about mako uh, you know of course he's pulverizing precious metals or working with you know centuries old bone dust or, or oyster shells or something which can be you know you have to work with in a certain way you have to have a helper what's more he's got to have his sources for paper and and you know people that email him and say i think you i've got some malachite you might be interested in because i know your style kind of thing i mean it's like one big team and it's like think switch over to jazz ensemble it's kind of like jazz ensemble he's got this dynamic improvisation going on with with his eye out there and and it, it's almost as, as if the thing he's working toward toward is shaping and constituting the very process but not in a way that is uh that represses the creative dynamism that that unfolds it's a it's a a drama it's a dance and and somewhere along the line there is this surprise and recognition that happens simultaneously surprising recognition which i think is you know there's no way a knowledge as information epistemology can make any sense of that surprising recognition you know when i think of mako in fact i keep on my desk 
first of all, this is a piece of Kintsugi pottery I got in his presence at one point. And, and then this is malachite. These are like, I just, I, after seashells, the things I love the best are precious stones. I, I say I'm a magpie. I like shiny objects, small shiny objects. But, you know, he pulverizes this and then paints with it. And, and, and when you're close to one of those, you know, there's, there's like 85 layers on there. And they're kind of prismatic, you know, and you've got to, I, I don't know, there, there's such a reverence for the material. There's such a reverence for it that is, you know, that's virtuoso in in intentionality, but it's subsidiary. And that surprise and recognition thing you mentioned, I, I smile because I just finished a dissertation and that's exactly how I felt. <laughs> I mean, I you you put it in words in ways that I was struggling to because there, there obviously was a recognition. I mean, this is something that I was writing and this is something that I was very close to and I was crafting at painstaking detail, right? But there was also a surprise when I saw it full and complete on its own standing outside of me. And I remember saying, this is weird, but I remember saying, that's what you look like. <laughs> like, yeah. this is, you're your own thing now. And and yeah. there's surprise in, in what it turned out to be. And I mean, you remember back when I was in the prospectus I mean, I was having an ep epistemic crisis just writing my prospectus because I was with you and um, and then seeing it formed and come out. It was definitely the recognition, but also that surprise and this creative thing that you made. Just dawned on me to uh, associate another word for it because I'm in the last I'm rereading the last volume of Harry Potter. Maybe our books are our horcruxes. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, our soul has these pieces that are in the different books that we've written. <laughs> but anyway, on a more serious note, uh, you know, dissertations can be death by reverting to fixate on the particulars. And uh, that's why it's so awful. And, and, you know, there's, you know, if you're a golfer, you got to spend time at the, the driving range, especially if you're in a slump. Right. And that's a reverting. Polanyi called it destructive analysis. Not that you shouldn't do it. Sometimes you have to. You're going to learn Hebrew. You got to go through all that, you know, just kind of this fixing on the fixating on the the little stuff. But your end is to get into it so you can see from it to beyond to get to that that two the the two structure, the two level structure. But yeah, then see, I also think what's happening in the surprise, and I'm developing it more in this book, I've, I've uh, immersed myself as much as I could in the last five years with the in the work of uh, philosopher DC Schindler, and others around his thinking. And so I'm, I'm, I'm augmenting some of the things that I had implicitly in in along those lines, and what I think, I, and I'm fascinated with the the very beginning, the very outset of a knowing venture, like that magical moment when uh, I would like to suggest. Now, I, this is not in loving to know; it's starting to show up in little manual. But I think the first overture in a knowing venture or an artistic venture is reality's overture. So reality shows up, and I talk a lot about my night blooming, serious blooming. You ought to, you know, Google time lapse, lapse photography of night blooming, serious, <laughs> so you can see what I mean. But that thing opens, and it's kind of like it says, here I am. <laughs> And reality, in it's like it presents itself and, and shows itself to us. And you cannot behold that blossom blooming without losing your heart. And you go, whoa! <laughs> right? And, and so that, you see, is, is the, op the opening salvo of... Uh, you're being summoned to communion with reality. So it's it's that little moment, that little moment where reality invites by self-disclosing, self-giving. 
and then you buy in. So I'm talking about doorways, right? So there's like a doorway, there's a, a, an invitation to hos hospitality that I have to consent to, and my consent is response. And all of that, not only is at the beginning of the knowing venture, I, I want to say that it's at the, that whole structure is the very heart of being. It's the heart of reality. In your, in your work, as you've walked through some of this stuff, what role does somebody else play in this kind of discovery and the, the epiphany things that you talk about, like an individual community, a supervisor for a dissertation? What, is, what role do they play? I'd say all of the things you named are just like Mako's materials. Uh, you know, I got to, I had an amazing opportunity that he gave me to do some talks on this at the same time that he was painting. <laughs> And so he would, you know, drip his red stuff or gold stuff across this huge, this thing. It was on the floor and I was, you know, then, then he would be done and I'd be standing there talking over this thing, you know. And I remember saying to the people, people, we're his Malachite. You know, I mean, why don't you see that he's brought us together in this very intentional sort of way too? And, and so, you know, one of the things that, early on he was saying that that was this idea of theology of making is that when we make together god shows up and for him it's always ensemble it's always ensemble it's always live and so like right now i'm looking at you i see four faces here and together you know we're inviting and and you know this might be why people are sacramental we're inviting the descent of god <laughs> you know <laughs> and and he comes and he comes in our ensemble as we listen and talk and do this uh, mutual indwelling back and forth dance right that is that just is the inviting of the real and we we just become dance partners in communion, in communion with the real. I really think that's the good life. I think it's what we're called to do. We're called to intimate communi communion with reality. And that includes God, not like he's an, oh, by the way. <laughs> I don't mean that. But, you know, what is reality but God and his stuff? So you're envisioning art being not simply this self-expression, but ultimately communion. Is yeah. that how you would describe kind of the transition there? Yeah, and I and I've, you know, I've taught Mako's culture care for a bunch of years in our humanities uh, core program, one third of which I coordinated over the last several years, and and you know, working students through from this idea of art as subjective expression. Uh, one of the things I I finally worked out to say is, yes, it's self-expression but it's not only self-expression, <laughs> right? So, so there's, of course, there's the response, but actually the response is an original. What's original is reality's self-disclosure, which uh, David Schindler's gonna say is the epiphany of beauty. That's just what beauty is, is the manifestation of reality. The, the night blooming Sirius opening up and saying, here I am. <laughs> Right. That so that's the the manifestation that just captures us. <laughs> right. And and so yes, of course we respond and, and we're part of the we're the Malachite too. You know, so so it all goes together and we creatively piece together all these things that start coming together in an incredible way. And that's what we should expect to happen in re in reality and and you know another thing about the defective modernist default it is inherently i may have said this already it's inherently arrogant and dismissive right whereas what i'm describing in this lively invitation of reality and a response to it is is this exuberant humility and i think this kind of openness to the beyond which, it, you know, again, in our, our certainty or bust mentality, we, we're like, that scares the heck out of us. <laughs> like, it sounds like ultimate frustration. And I want to say, no, it's an ultimate jumping in the waves of the ocean. It's like, it's like uh, endless 
wonderfully endless, exuberant throw, casting yourself out into what you know will catch you. But I, to me, it's intoxicating. And, uh, I, you know, I just think I'm caught up in reality. I'm caught up in it. And that's the a reverence for the smallest tactile stuff. Josh, are you a musician? Um, I was at one point. <laughs> John's a musician. Okay, so just think about just the the feel of a guitar, the 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 straight like acoustic. We say that word acoustic, and we start to have chills just because it's tactile, right? It it's this this kind of near tactileness. It's a kind of a reverence for the for the the stuff. My mind immediately went to because I coach soccer and I play soccer. And my mind immediately went to the sports aspect yep. of you train, you work, you do all these kind of things. And then that perfect moment of integration, yeah. what we call, they named the flow, they named the yep. zone, all the kind yep. of stuff. It's art. It's a yep. beautiful thing it where is. everything's integrated in a way to your, to your highest potential. And, that's, yeah. and when that happens among a team, uh, that's awesome. because everybody's yeah. integrated with each other. Yeah, that and I think of and it, and it's right. Flow is a nice word because it 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 gets at this endlessly dynamic interpenetration. So I'm a I'm a Steelers fan because I live in Pittsburgh or have lived in Pittsburgh, and so Ben Roethlisberger is kind of the king of subsidiary focal integration. <laughs> you know, you know, you just he the you know the snap happens and he's subsidiarily, dynamically, creatively integrating. You know, with his vision down the down the way, he takes it all in and he's creating this masterpiece. My mind goes to film. One of my favorite filmmakers is David Lynch. He's kind of a strange, esoteric filmmaker, if you're not familiar with him. He makes these films that are kind of strange and kind of hard to understand. And this one particular actor was asked about, you know, what inside knowledge he might have about, you know, the significance of particular themes or motifs or, you know, having been on set, if maybe he knows a little bit more about what the film means or whatever. And this particular actor, you know, would say, hey, I'm just the color red. I'm just the color red. David Lynch does whatever he wants to do with the color red, but I'm the color red. And I, I find that just to be a very interesting way of thinking about it. Which means one one of the materials, and he can trust David Lynch to to kind of create this something. Yeah, and that that kind of uh, that see that's a delightful humility too. You know, a sense that you're innovatively part of this larger thing, thing that's larger than you are. Back to the soccer moment of perfection, which is the hardest thing to get youth kids to understand. It's not all, you know, I was there too when I was that age, but it's not all about you dribbling the ball. It's about your team and it's about movement and field and all that kind of stuff. So, but when that happens, yeah. it's, it's beautiful, which is really cool. Yeah. I, uh, well, I, when you guys were talking to you, I was thinking it, theologically the way that Paul describes the church and the different parts of the body and the unity of the body, that it's really the exact same thing. Um, there's the color reds and there's the color blues and there's a, all these different giftings, which then come together and create this creative, dynamic, expansive ensemble. And when we, when it, when what Josh described on the soccer field happens at church, we say the spirit came. <laughs> I learned that from Colin Gunn. <laughs> All right, I have another question for you, and it's about boredom. That's something that I've noticed a lot of people talk about uh, during COVID when we're in lockdown, you know, just the, the boredom that people are experiencing. Um, but it's also something that uh, philosopher Michel Henry, phenomenologist, talks about um, this ennui, this boredom, which comes from, he says, a barbarian a society of barbarism. And what he means by that is this technological society that essentially views reality as a, as a repository of objects, right? The bits, just a collection of bits yeah. um, that can be manipulated and stacked. However you want to, in order to achieve your desired ends and everything is really just this exterior visible display. So he says that one of the consequences um, or symptoms that we see when we're living in a barbaristic society like that is this 
this ennui, this boredom. And, and really it's just this lack of inspiration. It's this kind of exhaustion and lack of spark, lack of innovation, those sorts of things. I mean, and not innovation in, in the sense of kind of technological progress, but it's in I mean, it's, it's out of touch with reality <laughs> as you would probably put it. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you could talk to us about, I mean, that's something we just experience a lot in a technological age and particularly during COVID. I think we've experienced that. How do you think about that? How do you, what, what's your epistemic therapy <laughs> for, for boredom? I guess is my little simple yeah. question for you. Well, my parental therapy was that I never allowed my girls to use the word. I ruled it out. I ruled it out. They might, you know, they couldn't say hate and they couldn't say bored. And if they ever were to say bored, I would find work for them to do. <laughs> because, you know, I just, I will not brook it. So I'm, I'm no expert on boredom except get out of here, get out of here. But I, I, I say that the defective epistemic default, of course, foments boredom for all the reasons you just said. And that, yes, this kind of epistemological therapy and philosophical therapy I'm promoting just is the answer. (laughs) It's the answer. And uh, I would say that as like in connection to that, what you want is to find the things that you love and start to blow on those coals. So I talk about blowing on the coals of your care. And and uh, part of the trick with kids is they're often made to do stuff they don't want to do. Another thing that happens with boredom is there's everybody, every kid is self-protective in our just extreme society, you know? So they're afraid. They're afraid of betrayal, right? Just all kinds of, just all kinds of stuff that everybody inherits now. But if you can find the thing that puts a light in their eyes and then start to blow on it like on a coal, right? I don't care if it's video games. (laughs) Video games have their own risk because I do think there's there's something to technology that engenders a sense of absence. And what you want to engender is a sense of presence. Okay, presence is essential to, to this. And um, cultivating some sort of way of being present, doing nothing, you know, and seeing that as the richest thing that you can do. It's, it's a contemplative cultivating of presence. You know, it might, it might be lost on a 14-year-old, <laughs> but it's not lost on a 67-year-old. Let me tell you, I've, I've got to the place where I feel like my job in life is to be present to the changes in the light that the Lord is making over the course of the day, you know, and, and move from one window to the other in my new many windowed old house, you know. But I would think, you know, if you find a kid's love, that's, that's where they want to start to be attentive, you know. And in particular, like I love to ask this question. This is a Calvin Sierveld prompted question in my, my humanities classes. What uh, are your most sensuous tactile experiences? Like my father was an oil man. He would say the the feel of oil on your fingers. That's clean dirt, hon. (laughs) That's what he'd say. Not the dirt in the garden. No, no. Kerosene, oil, that's clean dirt. You know, so, so what's tactile? It might, like another thing it might be for a kid is an animal. You know, just that kind of furry attachment. You see what I'm saying? Something like that. And then, and then just like kind of set the boredom idea across and say, well, let's talk, let's do the stuff you love. I do think that technology kind of is this uh, temptation to checking out. Mm -hmm. Amber and I are actually uh, working on a book on Black Mirror. And we've been reading widely on technology, and I've been reading a lot on tech addiction in particular. And one of the things that I read, and I don't know how legit this is, but that the word boredom might actually be a neologism from the not-too-distant past. 
and that it's the ad advances of technology that have created this concept of boredom and have sort of necessitated the coining of this term which 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 I think is you know quite interesting but I don't I don't know how legit it is I you know I'm not done an etymology on on the term boredom but I find it quite fascinating you, you know and and I think it goes back to what we were talking about even earlier with this notion of uh, disenchantment you know that we're no longer finding wonder in creation and yeah. the absence too I think that was a a really good point that you were making it's an invitation to presence yeah which is really what beauty is it's mm -hmm. an invitation to presence, an invitation to commune. It's a, you know, a, right. as you say, the flower showing itself and inviting a dialogue and engagement and mutual recognition. A, a pet yeah. would be the same thing, you know? So it's, it's how beauty is this thing that kind of brings our worlds back to get back together, restores the pits and mm -hmm. connects us with the world as well, which yeah. is, the most powerful way to counteract the boredom, which is a result of our world being torn apart. When you think of Mako's uh, studio experience, it's it's an encounter. Like the whole the whole arena to him is like an encounter. So so it's it is presence. And you know another place that I connect this is um, I've done some reading recently around Enneagram stuff. And uh, the wisdom of the Enneagram is, you know, my textbook. <laughs> and all that uh, uh, Rizo and Hudson say about cultivating attentiveness, attentive presence, and that other things just kind of fall away as you do that. In fact, even some of the, the idiosyncrasies of your number, <laughs> you know, you, you can kind of set them there so you can say oh and then just kind of let them kind of go away so cultivating that presence that being presence which i would say is a, a contemplative thing you know the night blooming serious and everybody testifies to this that thing when you know it's going to bloom i mean it's a hideous plant it's meant to be a, an exotic vine in in florida i just happen to <laughs> One, <laughs> uh, but but when it comes on to bloom, you know the night it's going to open, and and you grab your lawn chair, your flashlight, your camera, and as many neighbors as you can get hold of, and you all sit and watch this event. Talk about crazy being present. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that kind of beauty, it's so different also when we think in, in our sort of technological age, of course, there's a lot of talk about beauty and there's a lot of kind of manufactured displays of beauty as well um, that are technologically produced and rendered available to us in all sorts of ways. It's different, though, from the kind of beauty that you're talking about when reality kind of walks in and, and issues yeah. an invitation. Like, can you help parse out those categories because beauty is obviously something that is displayed on every advertisement and, you know, in, in every sort of device, but there's still something different to what you're kind of getting at. Yeah. I, um, I would like to, uh, follow Schindler and I think the classical Christian metaphysicians as they're being innovatively developed by Schindler and others to say that beauty is epiphanic. It's a it's an epiphany. It's it's a happening. And I would like to say actually that reality is too. So so when you get to the heart of reality, it is a here I am. It's fundamentally the self-gift of love. It's it's a it's an event to which you are summoned to show up. <laughs> you know, it's it's not an item that you collect. It's not a, a characteristic of this or that painting or not. It's, it's an event. And it's not an event of, of my own subjective personal taste, though it's, it summons all of me. It's not within me. It, it summons me to be beyond me. So it's ecstatic. So it, epiphany is, you know, the Lord's gracious manifestation of himself to the Gentiles, right? <laughs> you know, the Magi. 
saying, here I am. <laughs> you know, it's always self-disclosive. It's a self-disclosive event that then carries us beyond ourselves to desire and respond to it. So I'm, that's what I'm trying to get after uh, in my own work. And, and uh, you guys, uh, not Amber, Amber already knows this, but I'm always trying, 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 because I think this is my job to find the philosophical in the ordinary and say it in a way that it's for everybody. That's why I want to be you when I grow up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wouldn't wish that on you, but <laughs> but I just feel like humans are philosophers. We've we, it's our job, and I and I think the ordinary is magical. I do, and I don't mean that. Matt, you know, that's just kind of a my way of speaking, but it's incredible. <laughs> Reality is incredible. Now, see, I can say something like that, and it took me a while to get to the place where I could say that because I was so scared of reality. And I think every single teenager is terrified. And I think many adults are in that same place, too. Yeah. And I want to say on the rereading of Harry Potter, the message is it's really bad, but love wins. Ordinary reality is intoxicating. And I think an artist like Mako, you know, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> and what he doesn't get, and this is what breaks his heart as a Christian leader and uh, elder, it is that the church doesn't get the extravagance that the gospel and art share. It's, I mean, that's just powerful in his new book. I mean, it's been his message for as long since, since before I knew him, but he's, he's still there. He's, he's still grieving that Protestants in particular don't get this extravagant thing. We're, we tend to be Judases, you know? We're caught up in the functionality, like Christian utility, because we're marked not by the Bible. I mean, we, we share commitment to the Bible, but the, the, what we bring to it in our unexamined metaphysical and epistemological underpinnings, this whole modernity thing has just skewed how we see. And our, our love of God can only be unleashed, <laughs> I think, by this philosophical therapy. I think, and I, I think that artists will be better artists. And, and more of us will be artists. What you're saying sounds really similar to how people understand the spiritual disciplines and contemplative silence and things like that, that there's, there's only far you, so far you can go and then God gives you an experience, a revelatory experience of an objective, his objective reality. Mm -hmm. and, and we don't slow down enough to ever let that happen. And the boredom kind of thing sets in and the, discouragement and all this kind of different things when when we're not seeing the far we we're not seeing the far and stepping into the integrative process that that the disciplines really are because that's that's what they're all about they're about understanding who god is and opening yourself up posturing yourself to be met relationally by yeah. him are you a dallas willard fan uh, i love dallas willard yep yep <laughs> so his uh, divine conspiracy mm -hmm which is a program for discipleship from the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, there's two steps. And, and the first is, pardon me if I cry, your first job as a leader is to bring someone to fall in love with Christ so that then whatever you mean by spiritual disciplines is just kind of the natural thing to do. So and it and there is a line in there. I've got an underline that says, you know, I tried to read a little Dallas Willard every morning, <laughs> but something that says, you know, you've got to learn the the um I don't know what it says, but it's you know, you you need to learn to do nothing. <laughs> you know, doing nothing. And 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 uh, in as the exact torpedoing of boredom. So I, I would highly recommend The Divine Conspiracy 
as a program for working with youth. I just, you know, I, it's like when I read Dallas Willard, I think, why didn't anybody teach me this growing up in the church? I just had such goofy, defective, theological whatever, and, and I don't think it had anything to do with the sermons. I think I just, I've got defective theology, you know, because I'm a, you know, a warped person like all of us, you know, and, and, but I just, I, I think what he does is, you know, I think we all needed, we all need that understanding of Christian, the Christian life. So. Well, Dr. Meek, thank you so much for just this lovely conversation. We just absolutely enjoyed spending this past hour with you and just, you know, experiencing how lively and passionate you are about everything, about the nature of reality and, and all, all sorts of different topics uh, and, and seeing how uh, everything really is, is philosophical. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to make your acquaintance and I will look forward to unfolding conversation of possibilities <laughs> over the years <laughs> so and thank you amber for making the connection for us oh absolutely my pleasure <laughs> <laughs>